So good morning, guys. Good to see everyone today. Again, we had a great first service. Um, excited about what God's going to speak to us today through this service as well. Um, we're in a series called Revive Us, and we've been talking about revival, and we've already had a few Wednesday night meetings. We spent one uh, two weeks ago just getting in God's Word, reading God's Word together. This past week, I was out of town, but I heard uh, you guys had a great prayer meeting this past Wednesday. This Wednesday, uh, we're going to have a baptism service. I'll talk a little bit more about that today. Um, but we're just taking time studying revivals. And if you look, um, there's been a lot of talk about revival lately. I think part of it is because of maybe what happened at Asbury University. And uh, I'm excited anytime you see students getting in God's Word, uh, worshiping, um, seeking out God. So that was neat to see and, and see what happened there. Um, but also with the movie Jesus Re- Revolution. How many of y'all saw that movie? And you, did anybody see that Jesus Revolution? We had a lot first service that saw it, some of y'all. Uh, good movie because it talked about how in the late 60s, early 70s, the whole Jesus movement um, where you just saw people um, just coming to Christ in droves, kind of from the, the hippie movement. Um, but it was neat to see that. And I, just this week, on, uh, I stumbled across a YouTube video of a mass baptism uh, that was part of that with Chuck Smith and that Pirates Cove and like just literally like thousands of people just going out and saying, I want to be baptized and I want to repent of my sins. And you seeing that and and I feel like we see things like that and we're drawn to it because we know we still need it. We know we look around at the world today and can we just be honest that the world is a mess right now, that we need more of Jesus, uh, we need more God and and so I think we're drawn and we desire, we seek to, to have revival, but we sometimes don't know how it happens. And that's what we want to talk about in this series. How do we achieve that spiritual awakening and renewal? What are the kind of ingredients that you need? Now, uh, some of y'all are great cooks. Um, um, I, like to, I, I like to smoke things on my smoker, but that's about all I can do, okay? But... You know, when you have a recipe, there's certain things that you need in the recipe. There's certain essential ingredients. And I think we're in that area of the country where we're kind of famous for secret family recipes, right? And you all have, we have, we've got some family down in South Carolina. Now, uh, if you're a barbecue person, you know there are different kinds of barbecue sauce. You've got your Lexington-style North Carolina, the vinegar-based. You've got your Memphis-style, a little sweeter. You've got your Kansas City, more tomato-based, Right. But then South Carolina and parts of North Carolina have a mustard sauce. Y'all ever had that? A little different. Uh, I, like, I like all of them, okay? I, I, I like all of them. But my family in South Carolina, they had this secret recipe for the mustard-style barbecue sauce. And for years, my parents tried to get that recipe, and they wouldn't give it. We're family. We're like, we're not even in the same area. And they're like, no, y'all can't have it. Finally, just about the time that some of the family died, that was how we got it, Right? That's what it takes to pass down. But there are you know, certain secret ingredients that you need to, to make it and to make it just right. Well, I, I feel like when it comes to our spiritual things, uh, there are certain ingredients that you need to have in place for revival. We've talked about God's Word. We've talked about prayer. But today, I want to talk about the ingredient that I think is essential and that revivals don't happen without it. And that ingredient is repentance. 
It's repentance. It's turning from your sin and turning back to God. And we'll talk about that today. Now, I think sometimes we like going to church, hearing a sermon, singing a song, and it leaves us feeling all better. Like we come to church and we want to be, you know, the, the K-Love Radio or whatever, you know, the positive, uplifting, encouraging message. That's what we expect church to be sometimes. But that's not what we always need. Sometimes, right, we need to know that there are things in our life that don't line up with God's Word and we need to do something about it. We need to be challenged. We need to be pressed a little bit. We need to be confronted with our sin so that we can do something about it. And and the problem is, right, I think a lot of people want revival, but they don't want to do the hard work of repentance to get to revival. They just want to show up. just want to go through the motions. We need forgiveness. We want God's blessing. And, and, and you've heard me say before that blessings follow obedience. And, and I've told people this so many times. You can't expect God to bless your life when you're living in direct opposition to His Word and to His will. Right? If you're, if you're going contrary to His Word and to His will, you can't say, well, I, want, I expect God you to just pour out your blessings on my life. And that, that's not how it works. And so if we want to experience this spiritual awakening, then we've got to learn how to address and fix the underlying problems in our life if we want to be revived. And those underlying issues so often are unconfessed sin. Things in our life that, that aren't of God, that don't look like God, that don't honor God, and yet we just keep doing them without any thought of repercussion or consequences or any thought to how it affects our relationship with God. And so today we want to talk about this being revived. And revived means that you have life breathed into you. All right, when someone is revived, that's what their, their, their life is breathed back into them. That's what we need. We need to be revived. We need that true, abundant life that Jesus promises. We need to experience that. And the way we get there is through repentance. If you got your Bibles, um, flip over to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be there in a minute. Uh, we'll be learning about repentance from a, a pretty wild guy in Scripture called John the Baptist. Um, let's start with the basics, though. And here's, here's the first point this morning, just as you're following along. Just simple stuff. Revival requires repentance. If you want to know what precipitates revival, it is repentance. Time and time again throughout history. You see people uh, claiming to be part of revivals and having revivals and ex- all that. What is the true evidence of revival? It is repentance. It is lives being changed by the power of the gospel. Um, I-, I think you would all admit that the church in the U.S., in America, is nowhere ne- where it needs to be. It's a mess right now. Uh, you see a lot of churches that don't preach God's word. You see a lot of churches that are afraid to offend people. You see churches... Um, that uh, are focused on the Word, but then do nothing about it. They're kind of so self-focused and insular that they never reach outside the walls of the four church. You see a lot of issues with the church, but I still love the church. And I still think God wants to use the church. But we've got to get ourselves in a place of submission and a place of readiness where God can use us. I think revival is one of our most pressing needs in the church today until the church and in this country experiences revival, we're going to be ineffective and we're going to be irrelevant to the world around us. 
Um, I think we need revival because our biggest problem is sin. And the, one of the things that we have to realize is that God is holy, we are not. There's this chasm between us and God because of sin. And, and I'll just tell you this, right? If you're here today and you're like, well, Mike, I don't really need to repent of anything. Everything's good in my life. This message is not for me. Then we're probably not the right church for you, right? Because the closer you get to God, the more you realize that you have sin in your life that you need to deal with. And you realize the closer you grow, to, you grow to God, you realize how holy God is and how sinful you are. I love what Tim Keller says. And this is a quote I've shared before, uh, but I think it's powerful. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's this, this huge right, dichotomy we have. We are, we are sinful uh, beyond what we ever imagine, and yet God is more loving and holy than we could ever believe or comprehend. That's the picture that we need to have in our mind this morning. Jesus came because of that gap, that chasm between us. That's the gospel. That's why He came. So let's learn from John the Baptist this morning. Now, to me, when I hear the story of John the Baptist in Scripture, if you would take him out of uh, first century Israel and plop him down in our country today, I think he would be an Appalachian preacher. Okay? I'm just telling you. When I, when I listen to John the Baptist, when I read John the Baptist and hear from him, to me, it's like, man, this guy's a country preacher right here. Right? He is backwoods, rough. Uh, he is hellfire brimstone. He is going to get your attention. Right? He is like, you know, it, it just that's, that's the picture I have. I mean, he's a preacher that you would expect to preach a revival message. That's, that's what I get. Uh, he preached repent, repentance. He didn't hold back. He said what he wanted to say. And uh, he, uh, he left the results up to God. Let's, let's kind of pick it up in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, the first 10 verses here is what I'll start with. It says, In those days... John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. Now, I've been to the Judean wilderness. It is remote. It is desolate. It is not a place you want to be or a place you want to live. It is rough there, okay? Uh, his message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. For that means nothing. I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. 
So, so picture this, right? Here's a wild man wearing animal clothes, eating bugs out in the middle of the wilderness. He's telling everybody, you need to repent, you need to be baptized. And people are flocking to hear it. People are coming from everywhere to hear it. But the religious leaders don't like it. Now, Philip Ryken wrote a commentary about this, and I, I liked what he said here. He, he said, what would this message sound like today? Like, if you take this message, take it from that period, plop it right down in our midst today, what would John say? And this is how he guessed. He says, you know what you people are. You all are a bunch of hypocrites. You go to church on Sunday, but then you forget about God the rest of the week. You're le- living a double life. You say that you belong to God, but then you secretly go indulge in all kinds of sinful pleasures. You live in your nice big houses and drive around in your fancy cars, but you never do anything to help the poor. You snakes, do you really think that God is going to save you just because you've been baptized and you belong to an evangelical church? Listen, unless you turn away from your sin, you're going straight to hell. So, that gets your attention. If you put it in today's language... That's kind of what John the Baptist was saying here, right? He's preaching, you've got to repent, you've got to turn from your sin, you've got to turn to God, or you're going to perish, right? I mean, he's telling these people, this is serious, and then the religious leaders show up, the ones who are supposed to know everything. And what does he tell him? You, you, you think you're going to heaven just because your forefathers worshipped God. He's like, that's not what gets you into heaven, Your family does not get you into heaven. Your family membership. I feel like a lot of people think that today. Well, my parents were Christians. Uh, My grandparents were Christians. My great-grandparent was a pastor, so I'm going to heaven because I'm a Christian. It's not what makes you a Christian. It's not what... Right, it's not what you know. It's not going to church. It's a relationship with God. It's repenting from your sin and turning and running back to God. That's... That's what he's sharing here. And those, you know, they were gathering around the Jordan River, and I think they were curious at first. Who is this guy? This guy's weird, and this guy's like not like anything we've heard. He's not like the religious leaders who act like everything perfect. They get there, they hear the message, and then they're convicted. Then what do they do? They respond. They they repent of their sins. Then they're they're baptized, and and, and he's just telling them this is what it looks like, right, to live in the kingdom of, of heaven. He, he's explaining it to them. Now, I think today, um, you know, we look at revivals that take place and things like that that happen in churches, and they look different. Some rely a lot on the Word. Some rely on music. But you take strip all that away. The common denominator, the thing that must happen is Repentance. And so I'll just be honest, sometimes you'll see about, oh, there's this revival happening on this college campus or this place, and, and people are like, is that a revival? And, and I'm like, it's good, right, whenever God's moving, but my answer to, is it a revival, is let's wait and see. Let's, let's see what God does. Let's see the effects of it before we try to label it, because I think people are, are seeking an experience. People are seeking emotional experiences. People are flocking to see they want it so bad that sometimes they leave out the most important ingredient, which is, which is repentance. 
Right? That's how we know. Charles Finney, the great revivalist, he said this. He says, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. It is giving up one's will to God in deep humility. All right? he, he's saying if, if it's sin, it's repentance, it's conviction of sin and repentance and sin. Alan Redpath said this. He said, if you want revival... Let me remind you that God only plants the seed of his life in soul which has been broken up by repentance. And, you know, that, that makes us receptive to hear and respond to God's word. Uh, Stephen Hill says that one of the most prominent characteristics of a fresh move of the Holy Spirit is brokenness and tears. Leonard Ravenhill wrote when revival, Why Revival Tarries, a great book. Uh, he said the standard of measure for any alleged move of God is repentance. That's how we know a revival is happening. It's when people truly repent of their sin and turn back to God. Which brings me to my next point. What is revival? What does it require? It requires turning from sin and turning to God. Again, this is kind of basic theology 101. The word repentance uh, comes from a Greek word where we get our word metamorphosis. It means a change, a transformation, a change of mind right? that leads to a change of your life. And so what does it look like? It means you turn from your sin and you turn back to God. Let's keep going in the story of John the Baptist. He said, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy even to be his slave or carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork, and then he'll clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Jesus later uses this same kind of terminology of, of separating the, the, you know, the sheep from the goats or the, uh, or the chaff from the wheat. And what if, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but what it, you take the wheat and they bundle it up and they throw it up in the air and the chaff just kind of blows away. It's the part that's not needed. It's the part that's not uh, required. And it just blows away. And they gather up whatever's left of that and just burn it at the end. And basically what he's saying is there's a lot of people that are listening to, to this message that John the Baptist were preaching that aren't true believers. And God, when he comes to judge the world, is going to separate the true believers from those who don't believe. Right? Matthew uh, chapter 7, Jesus talks about this He's in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Scary passage, right? To, to, to think there are people in our churches today that say they are saved, that think they are saved, but are not really saved because they've never really understood what it looks like or what it means to follow Jesus. Because they're banking, they're counting on their family ties. They're banking on, counting on my church attendance, my giving, my service to get me into heaven. Yet none of those things really do. And so uh, I read this week, it said, and this was good, it says, Repentance opens the way for a relationship with God. Repentance has two sides, turning away from sin and turning toward God. To be truly repentant, we've got to do both. We can't just say we believe and then live any way we choose. Neither can we simply live a morally correct life without a personal relationship with God because that cannot bring forgiveness from sin. 
Determine to rid your life of any sin that God points out and put your trust in Him alone to guide you. Then and only then can you have a relationship with God. You see, it takes both. It takes turning from your sin and putting your faith and trust in Jesus. It takes both, right? I think you look at this, Jesus had some of his harshest words towards the religious people who thought, who were just really, in, in all honesty, going through the motions. They wanted to look spiritual instead of be spiritual. And he had some of his harshest words of condemnation for them. And I feel like, again, not to be too negative, but I feel like in a lot of churches today, they're more concerned about looking spiritual than being spiritual. They're more concerned with having a spiritual experience rather than a spiritual transformation. And, and I think we've got to be careful, right, and, and get back to the heart of what faith looks like. Now, I kept in my mind going back to a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's another one I've shared before. But he was worried about what he called, and this was during the rise of Hitler in Germany in World War II. Uh, he was a German theologian. He was worried about the, what he saw, the, the rise of cheap grace. That's what he called it, what he, what he coined the term. And he said this, he said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Discipleship uh, or, or grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. That's what he said cheap grace was. And I, I want you to think about that for a minute, right? Because to me, this was in the 40s, but it's just as applicable today, right? It's the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Right? God loves you and you, you can have a relationship. Just, just love God. But you don't have to change the way you live. It's a message we hear today, unfortunately. It's baptism without church discipline. In other words, when you're baptized, you join in fellowship. You're brought into that church, and then that church is, it wants to help you walk and learn how to follow Jesus. But now, the minute you tell someone or try to help someone walk out of sin, uh, to flee from that sin, they flee from your church and just go to the, other ch the next church in town. That's just kind of how it works now, right? You, you challenge anybody and say, you, you really shouldn't be doing that. They're gone. I'm just telling you, that's how church works today. He talks about um, communion without confession, grace without discipleship. I'm telling you, this is like a picture of the American church today. This is why we need repentance. This is why we've got to turn back to God. And so it's interesting um, to me, right, that we just look at our world today and you just see the signs all around us how much we need revival. Let's go back to my definition of revival that I've been sharing through this series. Again, it's revival occurs when the Holy Spirit breaks through to a group of people and leads them to repentance, to prayer, to the Bible, to service, so that their world is transformed by the gospel. And that's been my working definition as we've gone through this series. And that's what we need. We've got to, to let the Holy Spirit break through and lead us into repentance, into prayer, into the Bible, so that we can serve and transform this world around us. Now, um, I've been sharing some about some of the revivals that have happened throughout history. I was reading this week about the Second Great Awakening um, and maybe you've studied that before. It's kind of a, a big movement, a worldwide movement. 
Uh, it, but it transformed the world around, around them. And it led to the rise of the abolitionists to, to, to end slavery. It led to the rise of the temperance movement, uh, which literally closed down bars and led to prohibition in our country um, because the, everybody got saved and they quit drinking. They quit going out and they're like, we just need to get rid of this stuff. Um, and you see, like, it had a dramatic effect on the world around them. But one of the revivals that kind of flowed out of that was in the country of Wales. And um, Wales is one part of the United Kingdom. Uh, it borders England across the sea from Ireland. Uh, it's about one-sixth the size of England, so kind of small. But the small little country there in Wales had a great revival around 1904-1905. Uh, a young pastor, 26-year-old pastor by the name of Evan Roberts, who started preaching, uh, started uh, praying for revival, and they started seeing some breakthrough. They started seeing some, some lives changed. And it's interesting that it really, when they, you study the history of it, started with some of their teenagers just responding to God and saying, I love Jesus with all my heart. And then people just started responding and doing likewise. And it, this thing just started growing. Um, and this is what he prayed. He said, let us pray that the Almighty will pour down His grace. That's, he, he said, I have a vision of Wales being lifted up to heaven and we're going to see the mightiest revival that Wales has ever seen, has, has ever known. And this thing spread, not just from there, but around the world. People were coming from all over. It ended up over 100,000 people were saved during this Wales revival from 1904 to 1905. 100,000 people. You think that changed the world that they lived in? You think that had a dramatic effect on the world? Um, he just, and he was emphasizing a few things. He said, I want Christians to put away unconfessed sin. That's what he just kept preaching about. He wanted them to renounce any sinful uh, habits. And then he says, you've got to obey the Spirit promptly when the Spirit prompts, to you, uh, prompts you. And then he says, you've got to confess Christ publicly. So in essence, he was preaching the same message John the Baptist preached. Repent and be baptized. And, it's, and it transformed the world. You know, I was reading about the effects of this revival. And it said, again, the bars all shut down. Like there, there was, Nobody would go out drinking, so they literally had to close their doors. It said the police had nothing to do. The courts were empty because people quit committing crime. It said it just got like the whole area, the whole nation just like got peaceful. Uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, people forgave debts and, and just helped each other out and gave money away. And I was reading about soccer matches that would quit mid-match uh, for people and just break out into a worship service. Right? And people that used to come and get drunk and party, now they were just worshiping together. And this was the funniest thing I read. And I saw this in like four different books and four different accounts about this. There were a lot of mines there in Wales. And they used these horses and ponies to pull the mine carts out of the, out of the mines. And it got to the point where uh, the horses and, and ponies quit working because they were so used to being cussed at and beaten to be, be able to, to do something. You know, that's how they motivated them. Then the workers felt convicted about that. They quit cussing at the, the, the horses, and the horses wouldn't do anything. The horses didn't know how to respond when they weren't being cussed at and beaten. So that's like the effect it had. I mean, when it converts the mine workers, you know this is a revival, Right? When it gets to the everyday common people working, I mean, it just shut down, changed their whole world. Um, pe pe the church historians will say this is the last large-scale 
worldwide revival that we've seen. And again, 1904-1905. And it started right with a 26-year-old pastor saying, man, we need to pray. We need to believe that God's going to move in our midst. I shared last week about the Moravian revival. Again, started with a little church in Germany. Less than 300 people said, let's pray. And they start, started praying and pr- prayed 24 hours a day for 110 years straight. And they changed the world. Right. What happens when we get serious about repentance and revival? The world is transformed. It leads me to, well, how do we know it? How do we see the evidence of that? And, and that leads me to my next point. Baptism is the, is the public evidence of repentance. When you want to say, how do we know repentance is happening? It's when people are getting baptized. It's when people are, are turning from their sins and, 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 and are doing this, right? Publicly proclaiming, I'm dead to my old way of life. I'm now raised to walk in newness of life with Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. My sins have been washed away. I've been forgiven. And I'm going to follow Jesus. That's what baptism shows, right? And it shows that you've been cleansed. It shows that you are set apart. It shows you've been brought into fellowship with a church. I love if we skip now to the new, later in the New Testament, to the early church. I think we have the story of the very first revival. It's when Peter stands up and preaches in Acts chapter 2. He preaches a, 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 a simple message, a bold message, a powerful message. And I'll pick it up here in, in verse 36. He says this. I mean, this is pretty direct. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Basically, in essence, he's telling them, you messed up. You just killed the Messiah. You just put him to death. Right? But he, he's telling them he, he also rose again. It, but Verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what must we do? How, how do we respond? How do we recover from this? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins. You see the order here. It's important. Repent. Turn to God. Be baptized. You'll be forgiven. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promises to you. To your children. To those far away. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time. Strongly urging all of his listeners. Save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized. And added to the church that day. About 3,000 and all first revival how did you know three thousand people got baptized i love it Uh, so this message is so simple repent and be baptized in that order and that's why we at cornerstone we do believers baptism once you have made your public confession that jesus is the lord of your life we encourage you we urge you we tell you then get baptized don't put it off. Don't hold it off. That, that's so important to publicly declare. And what does baptism symbolize? Right? It symbolizes your old way of life being put to death. It symbolizes that you're brought into the church and the church will help keep you accountable. It, it, you're inviting the church to offer guidance and support to your life. It, you're saying, hey, I'm agreeing with this group of people and I'm going to walk and live with them. And it's doing all of those things. It's like I'm part of God's family now. Right? The, the whole Great Commission to go and make disciples and, 
and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and I'm with you to the end of the age. It's fulfilling that commandment that we have. And that kind of leads me then to this last point. In a healthy church, when this kind of is put into practice, what happens? The lost repent, the saved are baptized, the baptized are discipled, and the community is transformed. This is the cycle that happens. Right? The lost repent, the saved are baptized, the baptized are discipled, the community is transformed. Can I just be honest with you? When we look at the American church today, it's a little bit scary. And you see some churches are growing, but LifeWay Research did a study a while back. And this, is, this was kind of, it was remarkable even to me. They said out of all the growing churches, only 6% of growing churches are growing because they're reaching the lost. That means 94% are growing because they're getting people from other churches. That's scary, right? I heard one person say it's like the American church is just reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. Ship's going down, we're just busy reorganizing the chairs and what room they're in and what deck they're on. And we're so busy doing that we don't even notice what's happening to the ship. And I share that, right? Not, I'm just saying that's, that's all world. I mean, that's all across the country that's happening. And the problem, right, is it's easier to reach people who are in other churches. It's much harder to reach people who don't know Jesus, don't want to have anything to do with them. It means you've got to get your hands dirty. It means you've got to go where those people are and witness to them. It means you have to do the hard work of evangelism. And then when they repent, are saved, they're baptized, they're brought into the church, then you disciple them, right? Teach them to obey everything Christ has commanded. Then you send them back out to keep doing it. This is the process that every healthy church needs to do, but yet so many churches aren't doing it. They're focused on the wrong things. If you keep reading in Acts chapter 2, you see how the early church, what happened then as a result of that 3,000 people were getting saved. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. This is the verse that we base our Center 242 on. We're actually getting it put up on the wall. Big decal, Acts 242 right there. A deep sense of awe came over them, and all the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Each day you saw people respond to what God was doing and repent of their sins and turn to Jesus. That's a healthy church. I think most Christians say they long for revival, but are we willing to do the work to, to receive it? Um, that Evans Roberts, the preacher um, of the Welsh revival, he says, we cannot organize revival, but we can set ourselves to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. And I've shared throughout this series, we can't plan, we can't prepare, or we can't... We can't predict a revival. We can't like plan and, and make it happen. But we can prepare ourselves. 
For when God moves, we're ready to, to go with God. And I'm here to tell you, right, it starts with repentance. And I don't know what it is in a group this size, I'm just telling you, there's no doubt in my mind that we are struggling with sin that we don't want other people to know about it. There are people in this room, and maybe it's greed or materialism you're struggling with. Maybe it's doubt and anxiety and worry. Maybe it's gossip. What is it? Maybe it's infidelity or pornography or premarital sex. Or maybe it's dishonesty. Maybe it's apathy. What is it that you're struggling with at this point? And, and, and you, you've been holding it in and trying to hide it, and it's preventing you from experiencing the power of God in your life. How do you overcome it? You confess it. And so, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to do that right now. First John says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you guys bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father... We come to you today with repentant hearts, humbly seeking forgiveness. And instead of just saying, forgive us for our sins, Lord, forgive us for the very things that we have done wrong. Let us specify what we have done and how we have fallen short, how we have missed the mark, how we have let you down. Lord, I'm so thankful for your forgiveness. And so I pray that we would be a people known for our repentance. That we would just live in a, a, a cycle of life where we confess our sins, where we repent from our sins, where we turn to you, where we receive your forgiveness, where we walk in your power and your love and your grace and your mercy, and we extend that to others. So Heavenly Father, help us to do that. Lord, we have a tendency to drift away, to get so busy with life that we, we, we don't even realize that we're in sin or that we're sinning. Lord, we're so thankful for your forgiveness, but help us just to seek you, to seek you first. Lord, we just thank you. We love you. Lord, um, I pray for our church, just that you would help us. You would show us your holiness, your your love, that you, we would realize that we're separated from you because of our sin. I pray for those watching today, for those here that don't know you as their Lord and Savior, that right now, right here in this place, they would take that first step of obedience and confess that Jesus is Lord. Lord, we just um, we want to thank you this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to close a little differently today. And we're going to sing a, a song and and spend some time just talking with God ourselves. So maybe as we go through this first song, maybe God has laid some things on your heart that you want to just stay right where you are and pray. Maybe you're ready to just worship Him because you know you've been forgiven. Maybe um, maybe it's time. In, in many churches, right, the, they, they have the altar at the front. The altar is the place where you lay down your sacrifices. We have room up here. You, you're welcome to come up and kneel and, and just talk to God this morning. Um, we encourage you to do that. Just to, what is it in your life that you need to hand over to God, that you're carrying that burden day in and day out? You can leave it here and let God take care of it for you. Uh, we're going to sing this song, then I'm going to come back up at the end of the song and we'll take communion together. But for now, would you guys uh, stand and sing with us? Praise the Lord. His mercy is born.
sins they are many his mercy is Sins they are many, but his mercy is more. And that's what we celebrate. Um, 
I mentioned earlier, we do have a baptism service this Wednesday night, 7 p.m. up here. Um, encourage you to, to, to be here to celebrate with us. Um, it's something, it's going to be an awesome celebration. I know we've got at least, I think, five people being baptized. Love to see even more. So if you're interested, if you're a believer, you've not been baptized, then this is your invitation to, to not put it off. But the other thing that we're commanded to do at church is to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is when we get together, we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember His love for us, how extravagant His love was, that He loved us so much that His death paid the penalty for our sins. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that you used to be able to go get bottles from the ditch and from every places and wash them off and you could take them to the store. And they even had printed on them, redeem, right? Redeem for money. Depending on how old you are, it's different amounts of money that you remember what you redeemed them for. But I think that's such a beautiful picture of redemption. We may be in the ditch, we may be dirty, we, we may be broken, but Jesus loves us so much that he picks us up, he cleans us off, and he pays a price for us. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that price, that price of redemption uh, that cost him his body being broken, his blood was poured out, and he did that for us. In Romans chapter 5, it says, we, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But Jesus was different. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's how much he loved you. So today we want to remember that. And the Lord's Supper is a, a, this symbolic way where we remember that his body was broken, his blood was poured out, that we remember the new covenant in Christ. And so today um, um, I, I just want to ask that you go ahead and we, you can come up. You, we've got communion elements here, here, and over by the cross. So three different places. If you would go ahead and get those, we'll come back together and take them together as a church. The Lord's Supper is for anyone who believes that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. You're welcome to, to take this supper with us.
have the uh, communion cups that have everything in one, you can go ahead and take your piece of bread out. Jesus left his disciples with instructions, and Paul shares us shares with us those instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup uh, of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it for every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again church this is a reminder to us of Jesus' love for us and If I just stopped at the point, we're sinners, it would be pretty depressing. But we have a Savior who rescued us from our sin, who has set us free. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are now, uh, we're, we're followers of Jesus. We're even saints because of what he has done for us. So as we close out today with one more song, this is our time of worship to thank God for who he is, to remind us that he's coming back for us again. And until he comes back, we have a mission to keep telling others about Jesus.